One of the things I used to really enjoy as a kid, and something that sadly seems to have all but disappeared in the age of dedicated channels and streaming, was coming home from school to the BBC and ITV's children's block. Normally starting at around 15.15 as kids left primary school and running through till 1800 hours when the news and adult programmes heard, this was a schedule forever locked in the memories of children of all ages. Blue Peter, Why Don't You, Art Attack, Animal Magic, News Round, Rainbow, The Really Wild Show, Stephen Moffat's Press Gang, The Completely Off the Wall Round the Twist from Australia, all these and many, many more great kids shows now consigned to the ever-fading memory as TV schedules fight with tablets and YouTube. But you know what I really liked? Animation. Be it the homegrown whimsy of Wind in the Willows with its gorgeous stop-motion work and sublime voice cast, or the out-there spoof of Danger Mouse, Alias the Jester, or Banana Man, cartoons were often subversive, colourful, funny, and most importantly, entertaining. There was always a wide range of imported animated series to enjoy as well, from Around the World with Willy Fogg from Japan, Dogtanian and the Muskahounds from Spain, Muskahounds are always ready, and a plethora of goodies from the United States, which bequeathed a lot of its Saturday morning serials to British afternoon telly. Now, it's fair to say a number of the US shows were... How can I put this tactfully? A tad saccharine. Morals abounded in US cartoons, and they normally consisted of preachy life lessons on friendship and not eating yellow snow. Some of these lessons were worthy, to be sure. Witness He-Man telling kids that drugs are bad, or She-Ra telling even younger kids not to let anyone touch them in a way they weren't comfortable with. But nothing was guaranteed to put me off more than being preached at. The most representative of this was the phrase, knowing is half the battle, from the tag scene at the end of G.I. Joe. But G.I. Joe never heard here, so he was spurred that. We learned our life lessons from the children's information films, which played like mini-horror movies, and taught us the dangers of playing on train tracks or swimming in the canal by casually lopping off kids' legs or having Dixon of Doc Green arrive at Mrs. Smith's house to tell them that Smith the Younger had drowned horrifically and horribly. I ignored such morals. I wanted cartoons that were cool and exciting and didn't tell me how to behave. As such, my preferred cartoons were either Tom and Jerry or science fiction dramas. And today, I'm going to look at three of my favourite shows from the golden age of childhood. When running home from school meant getting to the TV before my granddad got home to watch my favoured full-colour fun. Space Adventure, Daring Do and Heroic Archetypes were the order of the day, which will surprise none of you, I'm sure. What was a surprise? Well, how many of these shows were US do-overs of Japanese originals? Case in point... Battle of the Planets. Here's its glorious opening theme and narration. Planets. G-Force by 
five incredible young people with superpowers. And watching over them from center Neptune, Seven Zark Seven. Watching, warning against surprise attack by alien galaxies from beyond space. young orphans protecting Earth's entire galaxy. Always five, acting as one. Dedicated, inseparable, invincible. I'm not entirely sure that opening narration makes a lot of sense. How can alien galaxies attack from beyond space? A galaxy can't attack us. A galaxy is just a huge collection of dust, gas and stars. It doesn't attack anybody. Aliens can attack us, sure, but from beyond space? Granted, we have no idea what lies beyond observable space, but it's probably just more space. It's likely there isn't a beyond space, although that could certainly be an exciting idea for stories. All this pedantry aside, Battle of the Planets made an immediate impression on young me when the BBC started airing it in 1978, due in no small part, I'm sure, due to the success of Star Wars. The five orphans acting as one were Mark, Jason, Tiny, Kiop! and Princess, voiced by Casey Kasem, Ronnie Shell, Janet Waldo, and Key Luke, mostly all doing double duty. I'm sure this is sacrilege to some listeners, but this is what I know Casey Kasem from. Not Scooby-Doo, or being Robin the Boy Wonder, or even his magnificent sweaters and top ten countdowns. These opening titles were incredibly well cut, wonderfully colourful, and caught the viewer's attention straight away. The Phoenix was a wonderfully designed ship, and looked like a total badass. The characters all looked interesting and had great costumes, although Princess's costume looked quite impractical and she kept flashing her panties to the viewing audience. Granted, this probably kept the boys watching. As explained, the five heroes had a great spaceship, the Phoenix, from which they did battle with the evil Zoltar, who seemed hell-bent on conquering Earth for reasons I don't recall. Battle of the Planets was a difficult show to explain. I'm sure I wasn't the only one who experienced this, but the images frequently contradicted the dialogue. It sure looked like it took place on Earth, but the dialogue told us it was all on different planets that just looked like Earth. It sure looked like Jason was quite happily killing evil henchmen left and right, but the dialogue told us they were only scratched and they'd be back up and running around soon with no ill effects. And it sure looked like Zoltar was a statuesque woman with bright red lipstick, and I'd be damned if she didn't sound like a man. All these differences were explained later, when we discovered that the Battle of the Planets was quite a heavily edited and censored Japanese cartoon series called Gatchaman, which was purchased by Sandy Frank Productions and significantly rewritten for a Western audience. The robot that watches over the five heroes, Seven Zark Seven, was an addition to the cartoon to smooth over any story issues and act as the exposition furry. This explains why his scenes weren't as well animated as the rest of the show. The first episode, Attack of the Space Terrapin, was adapted by Alan Dinehart, who directed the show, and written by Jameson Brewer. The writing of these episodes was fascinating. 
According to www.battleoftheplanets.info, there had to be a certain amount of original content per episode, which determined how much 7 Zark 7 footage would need to be animated. This footage would vary from show to show, depending on how much editing and rearranging was needed from the original Gatchaman episodes, and how much of the more extreme violence needed to be cut. Careful timing was needed for the American dialogue, as scenes were transcribed from the Japanese originals. Then, the script editor, the aforementioned Jameson Brewer, would write a script based on these scene descriptions, but his scripts didn't include dialogue, just a breakdown of the scene and the rewritten plot. He would then hand these off to a staff writer, who would follow his guidelines and bang the script into shape and write the dialogue. Brewer would then do a final polish for the animators, editors, and, crucially, the voice actors. It all sounds like what Stan Lee called the Marvel method for creating Marvel comics in the 60s, but applied to telly. The opening of the episode has Seven Zark Seven explain that Center Neptune is an underwater base that protects Vitalumis and all that has reinvigorated Earth's soils. This much-needed ore has then been sold to other planets, where it surprisingly works just as well. G-Force, the five orphans, are in charge of protecting this ore. A UFO drops a sea terrapin off and this terrapin promptly attacks the base where the Vitalumis is stored. Seven Zark Seven then calls G-Force into action. As this is the first episode, the character introductions are longer than usual, explaining who they all are and what they all do. Of all the regular characters, Keop was perhaps the most unusual. He communicated in a series of beeps and chirps, and this is explained in this first episode is because he's a clone. I presume in the original Gatchaman he was just a normal kid. Zark tells G-Force this is another invasion from the planet Spectra, and the G-Force team leap into action. Characterization is very good in this opening episode. Jason and Mark have a constant dick-swinging match as to who is right, with Jason proving himself to be a bit of a hothead, and Mark more the logical leader. Mark leads a team of he and Princess into the home base of the Terrapins, and one can't help but think that this wouldn't have happened if the animation wasn't already created. Princess would probably be the one left behind, not Tiny. Speaking of, Tiny is largely useless other than being the pilot, and only Keop is given any additional personality, teasing Princess about fancying Mark and wanting a slice of the action himself. They all get the chance when the Phoenix is brought into the base by Mark, only for it to be a trap. However, our five younglings have an ace up their sleeve and perform the Jet Spiral, a move in which all five form a pyramid and spin super fast, causing a draft that knocks over the opposing forces. And this seems to surprise the Spectra attack forces, who don't seem to have encountered G-Force before. Zoltar contacts his boss, a giant talking bird, perhaps the great bird of the galaxy, I don't know, and they ditch the space terrapins as a bad job and blow them all up. The phoenix escapes just in time thanks to being able to transmute to the fiery phoenix, a supremely dangerous manoeuvre that should only be attempted under times of extreme emergencies. Or once a week. Rewatching this now, I was really impressed with how well it held up. The animation, particularly the G-Force scenes, were still fluid and colourful, and the story, despite being a cut and paste job, managed to engage the interest. The best thing, though, was the musical score, which seems to have embedded itself in my brain. Like the score for the 60s Spider-Man cartoon, they seem to have wrote music for one episode and then reused it constantly for the 85 episodes that followed. As such, certain cues came screaming back to me when I heard them again, despite the fact I haven't watched this show since it originally aired. I was delighted to discover there's a soundtrack album. I may have to find a copy. 
There is also a Tomorrow's book, GeForce Animated, which looks as fascinating as all the other Tomorrow's publications, but is sadly out of print and selling for stupid money. A shame, as that looks like something I would have enjoyed reading. The BBC stayed pretty loyal to the Battle of the Planet's cause, screening it regularly until 1986. It was used after the school run on Saturday mornings and stripped daily over numerous half-terms and Christmas holidays, cementing itself into the hearts and memories of children across the land. Transmute! Another show that immediately caught my attention when it dropped on the BBC in the autumn of 1984 was Dungeons and Dragons. I was quite surprised by this show because it was a Marvel production. In 1981, Marvel Comics started producing their own animated series, starting with Spider-Man, and most of those shows were based on their own comic books, such as Spidey, The Incredible Hulk, G.I. Joe, which I grant you wasn't actually a Marvel property per se, but was at least a Marvel comic book. Dungeons and Dragons, however, was a co-production with TSR, who owned the rights to the D&D role-playing game, and the show, to my recollection, seemed largely original fur, not really connected with the game at all. Now, I have to confess, I am not a Dungeons & Dragons player and know next to nothing about the games, so I may be mistaken on that assumption. Still, Dungeons & Dragons the cartoon had a lot of elements that were cool to my 12-year-old self. It was, like Battle of the Planets, focused on a number of kids, slightly younger than the Battle of the Planets cast, all of whom found themselves in the land of Dungeons & Dragons after riding an amusement park that was cursed or magical or some such. Once there, the cast were given magical items by the Dungeon Master, a wizened, grizzled old dude, and they all took their places in the roster. Dungeons and Dragons had quite a large and diverse cast for the time. The lead characters were Hank the Ranger, voiced by Willie Ames, Eric the Cavalier, voiced by Donnie Most, Diana the Acrobat, played by Tonya Gale-Smith, Presto the Magician, voiced by Adam Rich, Sheila the Thief, played by Katie Lee, and Bobby the Barbarian, voiced by Ted Field III. They were helped by Uni the Unicorn, which had sounds produced by Frank Welker, and the Dungeon Master, voiced by Sidney Miller, and hindered by Vengar, the Force of Evil, played by Peter Cullen. All the main characters were in between 13 and 15 years of age, suggesting the ages of the target audience. Dungeons and Dragons boasted a pretty dark premise, for the time slot anyway, and a pretty decent list of writers. Paul Dini wrote a number of episodes, and he went on to write some of the best episodes of Batman the Animated Series. Howard the Duck creator Steve Gerber is also on the credit list. Michael Reeves, who has extensive credits on animations and a number of Star Wars novels, also contributed episodes, and Reeves also worked as the story editor. The first episode, The Night of No Tomorrow, was written by Mark Evanier, who wrote the book Kirby King of Comics. Every episode opened with a saga cell, and here it is. Barbarian, magician, thief, cavalier, and acrobat. Who was that? That was Venger, the force of evil. 
I am Dungeon Master, your guide in the realm of Dungeons and Dragons. Quite remarkably, the first episode isn't a pilot, per se. It just starts with the characters already in the realm of the Dungeons and Dragons. The only backstory the audience being given being those credits you just heard. A quick action sequence with Tiamak the Many-Headed Dragon opens the episode as the exposition furry shows up. She starts laying it on pretty thick, with all the characters talking about themselves in the third person, just to let us, the audience, know who they all are. The show follows the traditional quest format, like David Banner seeking a cure from being the Incredible Hulk or the Battlestar Galactica searching for Earth, the kids here want to find their way back home. The problem with quest shows was the quest itself. The audience knew they wouldn't find whatever they were seeking, because if they did, the show was over. But it always provided an impetus to keep the characters moving. In this case, the kids are told by Dungeon Master to seek out a party, and they may find a clue on how to get home. On the way, they encounter Merlin the Magician, who they are told can direct them home. But, as usual with magicians, he talks in riddles, leaving them more confused than ever. Animation is fluid and not as threadbare as internet write-ups would have you believe, and the voice acting is all on point. Johnny Most is the most recognisable, and his character Eric is the constant whiner, wondering why they're wasting their time with these stupid little side quests instead of concentrating on getting home. Eric was a character dictated to the writers by a parents group of the time, and was supposed to teach kids that groupthink is always right. Being the voice of dissent was apparently thoroughly discouraged, these parents groups felt, and the only way to get ahead was to follow the gang. The writers apparently balked at this, wondering whatever happened to encouraging individual thought in children. Still, this approach to Eric backfired, as Eric quickly became the most relatable character. He often had a point, why were they wasting their time on these ridiculous side missions, when they just wanted to get home? Anyway, you can probably see where all this is going. Merlin keeps Presto in his presence because he believes that he has potential, and the rest of the gang head to a party. At the party, Hank learns that Merlin died ages ago, and this leads him to believe that Merlin must actually be Vengar in disguise. The gang then set about helping their friend. Dungeons and Dragons was fun, even as an adult. It's pretty simplistic stuff about the value of working as a team, but at least it's not saccharine. The kids win simply because this is a cartoon, and whilst Wenger is a pretty formidable foe, he's always rendered impotent by a bunch of children, which neuters him somewhat. Diana the acrobat is interesting in that nothing is made of her skin colour. She's just another friend, and this plays into the idea that kids don't care about any of that. It's all learned later. Presto manages to save the day, which is the perfect end to a script which concentrates on how useless he is normally. It's a pretty decent ending to a decent episode, and there is enough here to ensure I returned next week for more. Only 27 episodes of Dungeons & Dragons were made across three television seasons, and the reason I think it's so well remembered is the repeatability. As with Battle of the Planets, the BBC ran and re-ran Dungeons & Dragons until 1991. The benefits of a quest show with no real continuity or an ending meant that the show could be rerun in perpetuity, newer episodes mixed in with older ones that we, undemanding kids that we were, either didn't notice or didn't care about. Apparently, there was an ending to Dungeons & Dragons scripted, but the episode was never made, which is a shame. It's apparently available as a radio play on one of the DVD sets.
Another Marvel property that was very popular was Spider-Man and his amazing friends. This cartoon was based on the Marvel Comics heroes Spider-Man, Iceman and originally included the Human Torch, but he was dropped for either licensing issues or because the producers didn't want the primarily kiddie audience lighting themselves on fire. A quick replacement was cooked up and thus was born Firestar. This had the nifty side effect of giving the show a more interesting lineup than it would have if it were the Torch, Iceman and Spidey, as well as giving the Marvel Universe a new female character. Firestar proved so popular that despite being invented for this cartoon, she made the move over to the comics. Spider-Man and his amazing friends debuted on BBC One in 1983, two years after it originally aired in the States. To coincide with the cartoon, Marvel published a one-off comic book adaptation of the first episode, and Marvel UK followed suit. However, they rebranded the regular Spider-Man weekly comic with the title of the cartoon and reprinted the adaptation. This rebranding lasted just over a year, from issues 553 to 606, when the comic reverted back to being called Spider-Man. This could be because the BBC didn't repeat Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends as much as they did Battle of the Planets and Dungeons and Dragons, with Amazing Friends disappearing from our screens in 1985, with a curious one-off airing of an episode in 1988. Designed to be Marvel's answer to the popular Super Friends cartoon, which was on the air at the time and featured DC Comics heroes, Spider-Man and his amazing friends had a different setup to that scene in any of the comics. Peter Parker, Bobby Drake and Angelica Jones are all college students with a secret. They are secretly Spider-Man, Iceman and Firestar, respectively. They live in Aunt May's house, which is somehow kitted out with supercomputer systems that would make Batman envious, all of which are revealed at the touch of a button. The show follows their adventures, and that's pretty much it. Whilst being produced in-house meant that everyone was on model, this show, fun though it was, kind of missed the point of Spider-Man. There were none of the soap opera drama of the comics, and whilst the characters were at least recognisable as the same ones from the comics, they lacked that Marvel sparkle. Still, the show was fun to watch. Voices were provided by Dan Gilvezen, Kathy Garva and Frank Welker as Peter, Angelica and Bobby with the usual mainstays like June Foray, Janet Waldo and Peter Cullen also showing up along the way. The show had a smooth jazz theme tune which you can listen to now. Spider-Man and his amazing friends Iceman and Firestar amazing friends. This episode, The Origin of the Super Friends, was written by Donald F. Glutt, author of the novel of The Empire Strikes Back, Star Wars trivia fans. Marvel ubermensch Stan Lee opens the story with a voiceover telling us that we, the viewer, requested this story when we continually wrote in letters asking how these three college students who have no money can afford their elaborate cave of supercomputers. 
As the story opens, Peter is feeling dejected when Jonah tells him that Spider-Man pictures aren't selling papers anymore and that these new clowns named Firestar and Iceman are. If Peter wants any cash, he'd better get photos of them and not the has-been wall crawler. Over the course of these 23 minutes, all of the audience's questions about this team are addressed as the show goes into great detail of how Peter, Angelica and Bobby meet for the first time. Peter doesn't mention that Angelica bears a remarkable resemblance to Mary Jane Watson. At an inventor's exhibit, Peter watches a demonstration of a super crime detection computer by Tony Stark, only to see it robbed by the Beatle. Suddenly, Iceman and Firestar show up, and Spidey makes three. This is basically an episode that connects all of the dots. Peter meets Angelica and Bobby in the school cafeteria, and they go to ridiculous lengths to give away their secrets, such as freezing Peter's hamburger for no reason at all, and then thawing it out just after they pulled a similar trick on Spider-Man at the exhibition. Peter would have to be pretty dense not to work out who they are, even before Angelica's dog, Ms. Lion, licks Firestar's face, and she blags her way out of it, claiming the dog must be looking for her owner. She is looking for her owner, and she's found her owner. Peter apparently isn't too bright, because he doesn't twig this until he gets a photo of Angelica mid-change, and it's only here that he figures it all out. He approaches the duo and then reveals his own secret, which he does with little to no guilt, which seems very out of character for Peter. They call themselves the Spider Friends because, hey, why not? Peter then takes Angelica and Bobby over to Aunt May, who has decided to take in some borders, and, you know, there's the setup for the show, really. Elsewhere, the Beatle plot carries on, and he kidnaps Tony Stark. The plot to this one is all rather slight, but it is fun to see that the wider Marvel Universe was a thing before the movies came along. Glut does a decent job with the dialogue, and some of it is genuinely funny, such as Iceman telling the Beatle he has all his records. The Spider Friends rescue Tony, and in return he gives them a crime lab and all that computer equipment, although how he installed it without May knowing is never explained. The Beatle has managed to nick Stark's power booster and the Spider Friends set about finding him for the final confrontation. This takes place at Stark International, where the Beatle is planning to destroy all the other power boosters. We get a cameo from Iron Man when we are told he's out in space, stopping a meteor shower, leaving our heroes to handle the Beatle. Spider-Man and his amazing friends is a perfectly serviceable introduction to Spider-Man and Marvel Comics in general, although it does remove a lot of what makes Spider-Man unique by turning him into another X-Man, basically. Still, personality-wise, he's definitely Peter, and Bobby Drake didn't have a lot of personality in the comics, so there's nothing to screw up. Angelica is a new character, so they can make her whatever they want to. Sadly, Spider-Man and his amazing friends ran for only 24 episodes over three seasons, but was remarkably popular with its core audience as to be fondly remembered today. Ironically, despite the hack-and-slash nature of the production, Battle of the Planets is the one that holds up the best. It's not as homogenous as the other ones. A lot of the cartoons of the 80s did tend to look the same, and Battle of the Planets, by looking as different as it does, ironically stands out from the crowd. However... All three of these are well worth checking out if you get the time. All of them are available on YouTube, so just pick it up, kick back, and remember a time when all you had to worry about was coming home from school and putting on the TV. Okay, should we have a look in the email bag? Always nice to have a couple of emails in the email bag. Our first email tonight, give it the boot. The reboot, that is, is from Nathaniel Wayne. Hello there, Andy. Hello there, Nathaniel. Oh, the reboot. So popular and yet so rarely applied well. I have a few thoughts on what you talked about in this episode. Firstly, let's start with the Buffy reboot. 
This is something I basically shrugged at when we first heard about it, but I've been warming to the idea since. Now, part of my somewhat upbeat view is based on potential, but we don't know much about the direction, except that the new Buffy will be African-American. But if they go back to the true roots of the show, taking teenage problems and exploring them through horror tropes, then I think there's some real mileage there. Because, to be blunt about it, the high school experience of today is very different from the high school experience of the 90s. Between social media, increased attention to issues of minorities and bullying, and just the general changing culture as a whole, there'd be no need for the new show to be just rehashing the same old stuff. To that end, I would hope that they wouldn't have a new Xander, a new Willow, a new Cordelia, etc., and just go for a fresh supporting cast instead. I think you still need a watcher, but it'd be nice to see somebody not deliberately done in the mould of Giles. As to your issue with calling it Buffet and have it be a reboot rather than a continuation, I get your frustration, but it's about branding. You're absolutely right that the narrative of Buffy itself has a built-in mechanism to allow a new Slayer without ever having to reboot everything. The problem is that Buffy's name is the brand. If you're calling anything else, insert name here, the Vampire Slayer, that doesn't carry the weight of the brand. If anything, it'll sound like a spoof. Heck, we use the name Buffy as shorthand for the entire franchise, so you can't drop the name. Unlike Starsky and Hutch, it's not a last name that you can pass on to an offspring or anything like that. I suppose if you wanted, you could bring back Geller and have Buffy be the new Watcher or something like that, but I don't think that's what anybody wants. Because fans of the old show will wonder why she isn't the most central star, and new fans will wonder why this old character has taken up half the show, which has been tried with things like Girl Meets World, which did well enough, but nobody really seemed to know who it was truly for or what to make of it. So I do think you pretty much have to reboot just because the annoyances of how branding work, which sucks from a narrative perspective, it's just kind of how it is. Well, I don't know if you listen to a podcast called Cinematic Universe, which is quite it's quite a fun show. Basically, the, the three hosts just go through every comic book inspired movie. They do it in random order, so they just pick from a, a lottery or whatever. They were discussing this on a recent episode, and they come up with an idea that I thought was quite intriguing. What if the new character in this show is the child of Faith and Robin Wood? Who, when we last saw them at the end of the series, went off together. Now, I haven't been following Dark Horse's continuation beyond season eight. Um, and I, So I know that Angel and Faith had their own comic book series, but I don't know what's in that series. I don't know, you know, whether Angel and Faith got together or what have you. But that idea appeals to me because you've got everything there. You've got a possible appearance by original characters because it's the child of somebody. Whether you'd get Eliza Dushku and, and whoever played Robin Wood back, I've forgotten his name. Uh, I don't know, possibly. They don't seem terribly busy at the minute. But also, one of their ideas that I thought was really intriguing was they call her Buffy after Buffy. So you still have Buffy the Vampire Slayer, even though it's the next generation of Buffy. And I thought that was quite clever. I did Because then that way, you get, to, you get your cake and eat it. You get to have your cake and eat it too. You know, you've got a new character, but she's still called Buffy, which protects the brand. But if an occasion called for it, you could have Sarah Michelle Gellar or James Masters or whatever make an appearance. And I think that would be really cool. So I warmed up to it as well when I heard them say that. And I thought, oh, that's actually quite a good idea. I could live with that. Obviously, you know, we'll have to wait and see what happens. I honestly do not think Joss Whedon will be involved in anything other than an advisory capacity. I think he's he's pretty much walked away from Buffy and he's got other things to do, which is fine. 
Now, my plan had been to offer up a bunch of my own reboot suggestions, continues Nathaniel. The problem is, being a child of the 80s with my formative years in the 90s, most of the stuff I really like has either been already rebooted or never really went away in the first place. Instead, I'll offer up some broad strokes about what could or couldn't work as a reboot. In my mind, a reboot can't work if the original's core premise was locked to a specific moment in time. I think what you said about Erwolf basically not being able to be anything like it was if it was done today is a good example, and also if it's overly dependent on a central performance. Now, many would argue that any good show needs a good main performance, but what I mean is, when you give the elevator pitch, is everything you talk up about the characters or about the setup? Magnum P.I. is a great character, but in describing it, you'd first talk about the overall setup. But something like Breaking Bad is about one character's journey more than it's about a sequence of events or a weekly setup. Or something like Seinfeld, where there basically is no plot and everything is all about those four core characters as people, would also be a bad idea. Actually, sitcom reboots in general are probably a lousy idea now that I think about it. Uh, I actually, just to break in there, I actually think that's one of the reasons Magnum wouldn't work. The show was about Magnum. He was, you didn't, the plots to Magnum are largely irrelevant. This wasn't Columbo. The the characters were what you went in for. And so the character of Magnum as played by Tom Selleck was what we were tuning in for a lot of the time. For the reboot to work, you basically have to break down its component parts and figure out what can and can't be removed. So if you take Lethal Weapon and break it down, you have Vietnam background, aging cop, unhinged partner, drug trafficking, a family man, a man who has nobody and raw action. Everything else is window dressing, and really the only thing that dates the central premise is the Vietnam background, but you can have a traumatised character from other events, so it updates pretty nicely. Something like the A-Team, on the other hand, is bathed in a very specifically 80s style of machismo that just seems silly today when moved out of that time, and that's pretty much the core of the brand. It'd be like trying to reboot Saturday Night Fever, which couldn't have existed at any other time. Oh, and don't expect the Council of Geeks YouTube channel to get rebooted, because I'm never stopping. Didn't think you'd get away without me shoving in a plug, did you? I've rambled on enough. Good work, as always. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. Well, thank you, as ever, Nathaniel. Uh, yeah, Lethal Weapon, like I said in the when you asked me about what I thought about the uh, whole debacle concerning Lethal Weapon, I think one of the things they did best with Lethal Weapon was make it about a guy suffering from depression. They actually focused more on that angle of Martin Riggs, and that helped with the reboot. Uh, I think I kind of think a reboot of the A-Team could work. Because of all of the films that came out about 10 years ago that were based on old TV shows like Bewitched and The Dukes of Hazard and all of that, the A-Team was, was the one that worked the best, surprisingly. So it could work. Um, but yeah, the, the, the show is very definitely rooted in the 80s. So you, you'd have to change it enough to be recognisable in today's society. And we've kind of had leverage and burn notice both of which were essentially the A-Team or Magnum P.I., but but new. So you don't really need a reboot of the old shows. Uh, but thank you for emailing it, as usual. Always nice to hear from you. Uh, our next email, Chris Franklin's return. Hello, Christopher. Hello, Andy. Wow, you put out part two of your Ramita Year One retrospective before I even had time to comment on part one. Not that I'm complaining. I will admit that as much as I loved Ditko's quirky Spidey work as a kid, I was really excited when Marvel Tales got to the Ramita era. This was the Spider-Man plastered all over the merchandise I had from the 70s up till that time. Plus, it more closely resembled a 60s cartoon, since Ramita was the visual inspiration for the look of the shows for the most part. 
It probably didn't hurt that I was approaching puberty, and Ramita was, and still is, one of the finest illustrators of the female form ever to grace the comics medium. I can see that panel of Gwen dancing in my head right now. It made quite the impression. Funny you should end with issue 50. That's where my beloved Marvel Tales train came to a stop. With the next issue, they leapt ahead to the Night Gwen Stacy Died story, and then Marvel, Marvel Team-Up reprints, sorry. The Amazing Spider-Man chronology moved over to the Spider-Man magazine Digest, which was so horribly printed it was nigh illegible. My glorious journey through the past with Lee Ditko and Romita was over. That's, that's something, Chris, that we, we do have in common. One of the greatest disappointments of my comic book reading life was picking up that issue of marvel tales and it not being amazing spider-man uh issue 51 and then i mean it was nice to have the night gwen stacy die and then the next issue if memory serves wasn't that a, a big triple sized reprint of the the harry osborne green goblin drug story that didn't have the comics code again a nice story to read and a nice story to have it a nice big fat comic like that but i wanted them to carry on with 51 and with the next issue when they when they went to the marvel team up reprints i don't think i lasted two or three more issues before i stopped buying it because i had all those stories they were all recent stories i didn't that's not what i wanted and um yeah there's there's been a couple of moments like that in comics reading where i have picked up a comic and it's crushed me for some reason but that is one of the most memorable that marvel tales stopped printing Amazing Spider-Man repeats, repeats, reprints with issue 50. So disappointed. Thanks for the overview. You're very welcome. Some great insights as always. And I love that the foreign language version of the Spidey theme at the end. I think they said Peter Parker in there somewhere. Chris, you're very welcome, Chris. A um, lot of people, mostly via the, the social medias, have, uh, have asked, will I carry on? Uh, one of the problems with carry on is, unlike Lee and Ditko, there isn't actually a definitive end to Lee Ramita. Ramita just kind of peters out on Spider-Man. Um, peters out. <laughs> See what I did there? Um, sometimes I amuse even myself. Um, and uh, other artists come in and then, you know, the, the best place to break off really is when Stan leaves, which is issue 100, I think, but I've already covered issue 99. So, gee, certainly the temptation is there. To, to cover the next 10 or so issues of Ramita and then the next 10 and so on and so forth. Because um, they are great comics and they are great to talk about and they are fun to just, just read through and waffle about. They are great. Anyway, uh, that'll wrap it up for today. As usual, I'm doing this when I have something else to do in between doing other stuff. Uh, the usual blurb, 2TrueFreaks.com. Go there, click on the link, Amazon, buy your stuff, we get the kickback, etc., etc. Helps us carry on doing this stuff. Uh, next time, I do have next week's planned. We're revisiting The Fall Guy. See you next week. And remember, everything's gonna be okay. <laughs>